Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 10. Still making our way through Mark. But we're about to enter the next chapter into the Passion Week, which will be a fun section of Scripture. And the triumphal entry will be in chapter 11. Mark chapter 10. Mark is setting the scene for us, preparing us for the last days of Jesus Christ on this earth. Jesus is making his way in chapter 10 toward Jerusalem. Again, like I said, in chapter 11, we'll see the the Passion Week begin. And the gospel author here, I think, wants us to make sure that we understand what is about to happen to Jesus but also who Jesus is. And in Mark 10, you look down in verse 32, you can see that he actually presents Jesus as the servant of the Lord. Really, the servant of the Lord as prophesied by Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. And Isaiah the prophet promised there would be a servant of the Lord who would come, who would suffer and die and be resurrected. And if you look down in verse 32, you can see him coming into Jerusalem. Verse 34 through 37, he's the servant of the Lord who will be delivered to die and be resurrected. In verse 35 through 41, the disciples are ignorant and they're self-serving in contrast to the servant of the Lord, Jesus. Then in verses 43 through uh, 44, Jesus presents himself as the example of a servant that they should follow after. And then verse 45, he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself his life, a ransom for many, which I think here is the key verse of this passage. So let's do this. Let's read this passage together. Would you stand with me as I read the passage aloud? If you're able, would you stand as I read Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. This will be our text for this morning. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Verse 35. And James and John and the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Sounds like a child, doesn't it? (laughs) Find out what that is first. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word this morning. 
May your word bring you glory and may it bring souls into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated, please? I think Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, and really even 46 to the end of the chapter there, is a description of what it means that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. As we walk through this, I want you to notice that in Jesus' words, in his teaching, and in his actions, that he presents himself as the servant of the Lord found back in Isaiah. And then he presents himself also, or I should say he presents to the disciples the idea that they should too be servants of the Lord. I think the theme of this section is that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. And I think the main idea that Jesus wanted his disciples to take away was that a disciple must follow Christ's example as a servant leader. A a disciple must follow Christ's example as a servant leader. And so as we go through this passage, you're going to see Jesus presenting himself as that servant. And of course, you see the the disciples and they promote themselves in pride and arrogance. They want to be great leaders too. But they do it in a very self-centered, self-promoting way. And so Jesus calls his disciples to be servant leaders like he is. Now, do you consider yourself to be a leader? You might be a little quieter in here and you might think, oh, I like to stay in the background. I'm not a leader. Or maybe you're in here, you're in here and you say, well, I don't have a position, so I'm not a leader. But do you realize that every person is a leader? See, leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. So if you have the ability to influence someone, then you are, in some sense, leading them. God created us to be followers And God created us to be leaders. Now, would you put your hand there like this? Okay, put your hand down. What I just did right there, I just demonstrated that you are a follower, right? So every one of us are followers, but also in the same way, each one of us are leaders. And you might think, well, I'm not a leader because I'm quiet or you may, I don't want to be a leader. But whether you want to be a leader or not, or whether you consider yourself to be a leader or not, All of us have influence. All of us are leaders. You might ask the question, well, what is a leader then? So a leader, it's the definition that we have up here on the screen. A leader is a person who uses influence to move another person in a direction he or she believes is best. So a leader is a person who influences another person in the direction that he or she believes is best. So you can be a pastor like me up here. And I have leadership, partly because of my position, but it's really what it is. It's influence. I'm trying to influence you with the word of God, by the spirit of God, to go into a direction of Christ's likeness. But also, before the service, if you talk to someone, and after the service, if you talk to someone, do you realize that you are being a leader in some sense too? Because you are exerting some type of influence into that person's life. And you can do it verbally, but you know, you also can be a leader non-verbally. You can communicate just with your actions and your example. And so you go down to the children's church classroom down there and there's the teacher teaching them, whoever's doing that right now. God bless them for being in there for doing that. And they're down there teaching and the teacher turns her or his back and one of the little boys goes over there, starts playing with the toys. What do all the other kids do? They go play at the toys. And so if you're a little boy in the five-year-old's class in there, a four-year-old's class, you are leading. You can lead. And so if you're a teenager and you're a child or a teenager, you hang out with your friends, you might not think of that as leading. But if you have any kind of influence upon people, there's a sense where you are leading them. In fact, I can remember being in high school. And I can remember some times when I had some bad times of people influencing me to do things I shouldn't do. I remember actually some really good times. Remember our youth uh, group, we would go out and we would go and actually uh, knock on doors and tell people about Christ. That was like a really good influence in my life. And I can remember times when God was working in our life and we talked to each other. So there's a sense where there's times where you're being led. There's times where you're leading other people. Parents, you are leading your children each day, whether you intend to or not. There's some kind of leadership. Even passive leadership is 
fleeting. And so each of us are influencing those around us in some way. And so therefore, what I want to kind of get across to us today is that we all are leaders in here. So the question is not if you're leading, but the question is how are you leading? How are you influencing other people? Are you leading? Are you influencing according to your own desires, what you think? Or is it according to Christ's desires, what he wants? So in what direction are you influencing people around you? This past week, I forgot to say this at the very beginning of the service, but we in our True Trackers um, night, we had 56 children. That's a lot of kids. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? We were pretty excited about it. But I think about it this way. There's 56 children that we can lead and we can influence in the direction of Christ. And there's also represented amongst those children our parents. Hopefully, the parents are influencing their kids using hopefully some of that curriculum to disciple their children. So we should be thinking about that. When we have interactions with people, we are leading. If you're a grandparent, soon we'll have a grandparents ministry that Pastor Roger's starting up. So Grandparents, when you get with your grandkids, no matter what you do, you're influencing them in some way. So hopefully the grandparents' uh, ministry will help you to encourage your kids, your grandchildren, to follow Jesus Christ. So what Christ taught his disciples in Mark was to be a leader, that we should be the leader that God wants us to be. I was reading a book um, about a man that was work, had worked at one time for J.C. Penney, and he worked for JCPenney in the 1960s. So a couple of years ago, but it was interesting. He was talking about a seminar that he went to that was helping them be better salespeople. I don't know if they did commission back then for JCPenney's. I don't know, but it sounds like when they were trying to get him to sell things that the more he sold, the more money he made, but I don't know. But they went through and talked about the different kinds of leaders. And so he explained this. Now, I think JCPenney's had a little bit different um, values back in the 1960s than today. But I thought, when I read through these, I thought, this is, I think this is true. And they went through four types of leaders that, that you find in a company. So that's what they were talking about. But I think it's true of life. And one is a positional leader. And that's a person who has a position that gives them responsibility. So like a manager or a supervisor, or in our context, a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. The second kind of leader is a personality leader, personality leadership. And that results... Uh, because people like to be around you. So you see this in high school a lot, right? You see the personality leaders, like the football players, you know, the cheerleaders. Which I was neither one of those. Thank goodness I wasn't the last one. But it's positional. It's like people surround you because of your personality. And then you have the other one that's the, the competence leader. And that's the idea that's a person who is looked to because he or she knows how to do something. The other ones in high school, they end up becoming the boss for the personality leaders, okay? Later on in life. So the competence leader. And then fourth, you have this kind of leader. And they said, this really is the leader that everybody is in some way. It's the example leader. And this is actually the most powerful and influential leader that you can have. So an, influential, an example leader can be someone who influences people in a negative way and also can influence people in a positive way. And so generally, they're talking about J.C. Penney and, and secular life, right? But this is really true in life. In fact, I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, be the example, or he's an example, and you need to be an example as well. An example leader. So an example leader might be a person in a negative way that influences people by complaining. You ever been around a person who complains a lot? What does that kind of do to the atmosphere of where you work or live? It just brings everything down, and you find yourself complaining as well or maybe there's gossip or maybe someone just like being passive and not doing something and so that influence actually is leading in a negative way but also there's the example of christ likeness where you are light and you are salt in that area you're, you're like first timothy 4 12 don't let anyone despise your youth but but timothy be an example of the believers in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity it's really the last type of leader, this example leader, is the one Jesus was and calls his disciples to as well. And that is, therefore, to be a servant leader. And so we're going to look at four distinctions of a servant leader. Of course, Jesus 
was and is the servant leader, and we are just following his pattern. So a servant leader is, first of all, a follower. A servant leader is, first of all, a follower. He's a distinct follower. He's a servant leader who follows with courageous faith. Look down in verse 32. Verse 32, and the Bible says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Jesus knew what lay ahead for him. He was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And you can see in verse 32, it says he was going up to Jerusalem. That's the idea that he was going up in elevation because Jerusalem was higher than the place where he was. So so think about that, though, that Jesus is going ahead of his disciples. They are following him, and it's uphill the entire way. Maybe a little downhill at certain points, but they're on the incline going up. Think about his body, how tired it must have been. Think about his mind and emotions as they fought really the expected pain to come. But Jesus was pushing forward. And listen, he was pushing forward as a follower. Now you might think, that's kind of odd. What do you mean he was a follower? Who did Jesus follow? What did he follow? Well, he followed his father. And he followed his father's plan. In fact, one of the great passages that speak of Jesus being a servant is Philippians 2, 7 and 8. Where it says, but he, it's Jesus, emptied himself... Which, which is the idea that he gave up the free exercise of his rights as God. So he still remained God and still is God. But he actually gave up at that moment the, the free exercise of his rights. And it says that he took the form of a servant. So there you can see Jesus described as a servant again. And he was, being, he was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? obedient to the point of death. So there's a sense where Jesus was obedient to his father and his father's plan. And what was his father's plan from before the foundations of the world? That Jesus would come, suffer, die, and be resurrected. And really the picture here should be one that you um, think back to the Old Testament and think about a particular person who walked up this same mountain. And that was Abraham. If you remember, Abraham had his son Isaac And God commanded him to go up to Mount Moriah, and he was to sacrifice his son up there. And Isaac obediently followed his father up that mountain. Of course, when they came to the top of the mountain, God provided a substitute of of an innocent ram. But here's the picture. that, That same mountain, Mount Moriah, was actually what Jerusalem was built upon. So here's Jesus following and obeying his father, walking up to Mount Moriah, to Jerusalem, to fulfill the father's plan. So Jesus had faith in his father's plan. He trusted what his father had planned for him. He was obedient. So look down in verse 32. He says they were going up to Jerusalem, and then Jesus was walking ahead of them. It's like Jesus just keeps pushing forward. He just keeps going and they're kind of lagging behind a little bit. You ever do that when you're at the store? You know, I have five little munchkins. And so sometimes I'm like, let's get out of the store. You know what I do sometimes? I'm like, I'm leaving. <laughs> Can we all please go? Let's go. And so you, you kind of lead the way. It's kind of what I think Jesus is doing here. It's like, I'm still going guys. If you're going to follow me, come. So I think Mark points this out in a way that seems to indicate that Jesus was doing this on purpose. In fact, another chapter is in Mark. Um, he records Jesus leading and walking ahead. In fact, you could turn there. You just look on the screen. Mark 14 says this. Mark 14. This is right before Jesus was about to die. And Jesus said to them, the disciples, you will fall away for it is written. The word of God says, I will strike the shepherd. And the sheep will scatter. But after I am raised, I will go before you into Galilee. So Jesus is leading the way. After the resurrection of Jesus, the angel said in verse 7, But go and tell his disciples, Peter, that he is going before you to 
Galilee. So you see this idea that Jesus is leading the way for them. And Jesus was following his father, but he was also leading his disciples. And he was leading with courageous faith. I mean, observe in verse 32 how the disciples responded to Jesus. It says that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they, the disciples, were amazed. What were they amazed about? Because Jesus had so much courage. They knew the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Jesus made it clear twice. I think it was in Mark 8 and then the last chapter in Mark 9. He made it clear to them that he was going to be killed. And now he was marching right into it. So they were amazed. And then also says they also were afraid, right? What were they afraid of? Well, they believed that if he died, what was going to happen to them? They were probably going to die too. So there was this fear there. But they kept following. And I would just say this. For all the faults of the disciples, I will say this. They did keep following him, even though they knew what lay ahead. And so in verse 32, it says, Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him. And so in the next two verses, Jesus prophesied what would happen to him in the next few weeks and days here. In these verses, Jesus described really in detail his, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. What's interesting is to compare Jesus' prophecy here in Mark with Isaiah's prophecy of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. And then to come back from, to Mark 11 through 16 and see how Jesus actually fulfilled both of those prophecies. And so let's just walk through and see, first of all, in Mark, this, and then we're going to go back to Isaiah and look at that. So look at verse 33. Notice how Jesus specifically and really, um, really accurately describes what's about to happen to him. Verse 33. See, Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem. So first, let's stop and ask this question. Whose fault is it that Jesus died? It's his. He says, we are going to Jerusalem And he's the son of man, so he's going there on purpose. And so the son of man will be delivered over. Who will do that? Judas. To the chief priests and scribes, they will condemn him to death. So notice, they won't kill him. They will condemn him. So notice how accurate that is. And then what will they do? They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are the Romans, which was led by Pilate. Verse 34, they will mock him, spit on him flog him and kill him. Well, he obviously knew something was going to happen, right? He somehow he knew about this plan and he told it in pretty specific detail. And then last of all, the most glorious part of the prophecy after three days, he will rise again. Now, would you go back with me to Isaiah chapter 50? What's amazing is that Jesus prophecy here follows the outline of Isaiah's prophecy. Go, so go back to Isaiah. Probably, if you don't know where it's at, it's probably just open your Bible up in the very middle and just start looking for it, okay? So if you're at the Psalms, uh, you need to go a little farther. So Isaiah and then chapter 50. These prophecies of Christ here in Mark 10 so, line up so well with Isaiah's prophecy. It's really interesting And so Isaiah chapter 50, we're going to look down in verse 5. So again, Isaiah is speaking of the servant of the Lord. And in verse 5, the Bible says, The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So here's Isaiah's servant of the Lord. He will not turn back. He is courageous. And he he suffered, although he's courageous, in suffering, so he says, I gave my back to those who strike. So there he's flogged. My cheeks to those who pull out the beard. So his beard is ripped out. I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting. So he's spit upon. Jesus prophesied that. And notice his face in his father. Look at verse 7. And the Lord God helps me. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. What does that mean when he says, I, I set my face like a flint? 
I don't know if there's any wilderness guys in here that actually use flints to start fires. You've got to be pretty skilled to do that and probably have some calluses on your hand so when you strike the, the flint, your hand doesn't get hurt. But a flint is a hard rock, right? Now you t- in order to use a flint to start a fire, you, you take the hard rock, you put it in your hand, it stays stationary, and then you, you take a piece of hard metal and you strike it. You strike it with precision and you strike it hard enough to create a spark so that something can catch fire. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, or what the scriptures are saying, is that this person, the servant of the Lord, will have, will, his face will be set like a flint. In other words, it will stay in place and it will be striked. I think there's the idea here that it's the determination, like he will stay fixed. His face will stay fixed. He's going to be courageously determined to go forward with whatever God had for him. And then notice in verse 7, there's this idea of faith. He's suffering in faith. The Lord will help me. And then at the very end, and I will not be put to shame, which indicates that he trusts his father's plan and actually believes there's victory on the other side. So think of the courage. Think of the courage that Jesus had as he faced suffering. I mean, you wonder if this verse was in his mind as he was on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to set his face like a flint. You wonder if even when he was being punched and beat, if this was actually on his mind as well. He allowed his face to be, to be beat and bludgeoned and the sparks of blood flew. He ma- maintained his, cur- his courageous faith. Go over to, to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52. We're not going to read through this entire section on the servant of the Lord, but it is very interesting to see the parallels. Isaiah fifty two thirteen, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So after all the suffering, there will be exaltation. So you, Jesus would have hold, held on to this promise. Suffering will end in resurrection. And then verse, go down to uh, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then if you go down to Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Except for him, right? We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken, for the transgression of my people. And then this is very interesting. Verse 9, he's buried. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So it was God's will, and that's what he was trusting. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, that's why he died, an offering for guilt. And he, notice this promise, he shall see his offspring. Well, what's that? That's spiritual children. He shall prolong his days. How do you prolong the days of a person that gets beat up like this? Only through resurrection. So go back with me to Mark chapter 10. The Jesus, he knew these prophecies. And then Jesus was now going to fulfill these prophecies. So he talks about that here in Mark chapter 10. And he set his face like a 
flint to do his father's will. And I think Jesus here is presented as the servant leader who follows with courageous faith. And as disciples of Christ, we must follow this example as well. Now, what is courage? When we think about courage, what is courage? Many times we think about a soldier that goes into battle, and that is courage. Or if you were last week, watched any of the videos of September 11th, you might have seen some of those first responders going into those buildings. That's definitely courage. But courage is this definition up here. Courage is the determination to move forward in the face of fear because you believe the outcome is preferable. So think about this definition. Jesus had courageous faith. And courage is the determination to to move forward in the face of fear because you believe the outcome is preferable. Now, we live in beautiful Southern California. There's a lot to do here. One thing I've realized is I think you can do something every weekend of your life and do something different. And then you ask people in Southern California, what have you done? They're like, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. So I guess the place you live, sometimes you don't do all the things that people that come on vacation here do. But one of the things you can do in California here on the coast is you can go parasailing. You ever been parasailing? It's pretty, it's pretty scary. I've been parasailing before. And when you parasail, you get into a boat and you zip out to the ocean and they put this harness on you. And then you sit in the back of the boat and they hook you up to a parachute. The boat takes off and the parachute lifts you up about four or 500 feet in the air. And you're tethered by a rope. And you know, you think about it, that takes a lot of courage. I remember sitting in the boat when I went parasailing. I remember sitting in the boat and thinking, I do not want to do this. And I'm only doing this because I am being pressured to do it. But I didn't say that to anyone. I smiled and, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, another couple on the boat, you know, they're like, uh, they're, I don't know if they're on their honeymoon or what, but they were there. And it was kind of like, they're like, oh, this is so much fun. I'm like, uh, yeah, it's so much fun. And I did believe that probably once I got up in the air and I looked around, it would be kind of cool to you know, do that and see everything. And, but it's, there's a sense where you have to have some courage, but also you have to have a lot of faith. You have to have faith in the boat because that thing stops and stalls while you're up there. Oh, you're falling down. <laughs> you have to have faith in the boat ride, uh, driver. You have to have faith in that cord, that little cord. I'm like looking at that cord thinking, is that thing going to hold me? Like this, it's the only thing tethering me to this right here. And that parachute, there's a lot of faith you have to have in this company that they put all this stuff together here. But also you must take that faith and then have courage to do that. And so I did. I got in the back of that boat, went up in the air, and I was a little bit scared. But then I was also like, oh, this is kind of fun. This is a lot of fun. And came back down and said, I'm never going to do that again. But I'm glad I did it once. <laughs> no, just kidding. I might do it again. Who knows? <laughs> Probably not. But courage is really the determination to say, in the face of fear, I'm going to do this because I believe the outcome is preferable. I don't want everyone laughing at me in the boat that children could go parasailing, but I can't. Okay, that's pretty much what it is. And so so you just move forward in really faith and determination. And God calls us as Christians to have courage, to have really courageous faith. And I think that's what you see Jesus having here as he's moving forward to Jerusalem. In fact, you think about Joshua. Joshua was commanded by God to have courageous faith, right? Moses, who wrote five books of the Bible, so a pretty important guy who led Israel out of Egypt, is now dead in Joshua chapter 1. And Joshua has to step up as a leader. You think he was a little scared, right? Not only did he have to lead people who were led by the great Moses, but now he has to go into the promised land and conquer all these people. Like, how is that possible? So God recognized that he would be afraid. And so he said, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so he had to have courage, which meant for him that he must be determined to move forward in the face of fear because he believed the outcome promised was best. Now, how did he know that the outcome was preferable? Because God said to do it. And he trusted God's word and he trusted God's plan. And aren't you glad he did? God did amazing things through them. And Jesus had courage. What does that mean for Jesus? He was determined to move forward in the face of potential fear and real pain because he believed the outcome was preferable. And what was the outcome for him that he believed was going to happen? Was resurrection. He believed he was going to be victorious over Satan and sin and death, the grave. So we too 
are to follow Jesus with courageous faith, which means we must be determined to move forward, trusting God in the face of fear and pain. And why? It's because we believe that God has a better outcome than maybe even that we can see. I mean, it's eternal, it's heavenly, and it's planned by God. So courage, courage keeps us moving forward when we're afraid or maybe when we're uncertain. And where did Jesus get this courage from? I mean, he's God, right? But the Holy Spirit came upon him in his ministry, and this courage came from the Holy Spirit. And think about it this way. It was based upon the truth of God's word. I mean, throughout the Gospels, Jesus over and over is either quoting directly scripture or from the Old Testament, or he's referring back to it, particularly the prophecies here. So he had this, he had, even as God himself, had faith in the word that was prophesied years ago. So as Christians, we must step out in courageous faith, willing to follow God, follow him as he's revealed his will in the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to go forward determined that even through fear and uncertainty, we will keep following him because we believe that his way is better than the world's way we believe that his desires are better than my own sinful desires as a disciple we can at times though i know i can myself just feel almost it's almost impossible to move forward like you have these these great fears in front of you like you're thinking i i can't do that you might even be faced with something very difficult right now maybe you even this week or maybe even today if i I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't do whatever this problem is that's going on in my life. And let me just say this, friend, you need, you need to go to the Holy Spirit in prayer and ask him for courage, give you courage. You need to go to the word of Christ and you need to read his word and, and base your courage and your faith upon what he promises in his word. And so sometimes courageous faith means that you, you go and tell someone the gospel, even though you don't feel like doing it, even though you're scared out of your mind, because you know that the outcome of them hearing the gospel and the power of God working in their life is actually better than you retreating in fear. Sometimes courage means that we seek reconciliation with a brother or, or sister in Christ or someone that we're at odds with. And, it's, you know, courage says, you know what? I don't want to do this, but I know and trust God's word, what it says, that it's better for us to seek reconciliation. So I'm going to move forward, even though I'm afraid, I'm going to move forward in faith, in courageous faith. Sometimes courageous faith means that you confess a sin that you're struggling with. And there could be a person in here, and there's a sin that's dominating your life, and you're just afraid of getting help. What's this going to do? What are people going to think about me? That's fear. But courageous faith says, you know what, God? I need to confess my faults. I need to get help from other people. I need to trust your word. I need to move forward with courage. Courageous faith sometimes admits you're wrong. Admit you're wrong. Maybe you're a child. Maybe you're a parent. You've done something wrong. And you say, well, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm afraid what, but courageous faith says, you know what? I'm willing to come forward even when my whole person, my life screams, no, don't do it. Courageous faith keeps us going forward, even, even listen, even in the, the regular rhythm of life. When you get up and you're like, really, another day of everything the same? That even takes courage. You know that? To get up and say, God, I'm going to read my Bible again today. I'm going to pray again today. And I'm going to trust you again today, even though I don't think it's going to be any different than yesterday. But I'm going to go forward trusting this is what you have for my life at this moment and I'm going to rejoice in Jesus Christ. And so you as a disciple need to follow the example of Christ. And that is Christ was a servant leader. And so what does a servant leader do? They move forward with courageous faith. And there's a difference between, between courageous faith in God and foolish courage that follows your own selfish desires. Right? Some people think they have a lot of courage. And so they're like, I'm going to go do something. But actually, it's kind of dumb like what they're doing. Well, how do you know the difference? Well... We're going to see two guys who have courage in this next passage here, in this next point. But their courage is really sourced in self-interest. It's about themselves. It's not about the glory of God. And so the next point we're going to look at, and we're going to do this very quickly, not spend a lot of time on this, because we're not going through all four points today, if you were concerned about that, just two. And that is, number two, a distinct purpose. A distinct purpose. A servant leader is a distinct 
distinct follower. He must follow with courageous faith, but also he must have a distinct purpose. And that is to bring glory to God. In the next few verses, what we see is a contrast between the disciples who are self-serving and Jesus who honored God and brought glory to his father. So look down in verse 35 and you can see two brothers there, James and John. They were also called in Mark 317, the sons of thunder and that they got that nickname because they were brash and they were bold in character. So these guys have some courage, but again, notice what kind of courage they had. It was misplaced. It was self-centered and their purpose was really to bring glory to themselves. So look in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them wisely, as any parent would do, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. At this point, what was the aim of life for James and John? I mean, what does this reveal about the purpose that they had? They wanted glory for themselves, didn't they? Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. And how ironic that they wanted to bring glory to themselves by sitting in the place of power and prominence in heaven in the glory of the one who alone deserves glory. I mean, they they said, we want to be glorified in the presence of the one who alone deserves glory. That's terrible. In fact, that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 29, he says, God's chosen the weak, feeble people of the world because no human being might or can boast in the glory, boast, uh, boast our glory in the presence of God. So no person should or will boast in their own glory in heaven. No one's going to get to heaven and be like, oh man, I did a lot of really good things on earth. It's just not going to happen. They'll look back and they'll say, God, Jesus, you did a lot of things Through me, you receive all and deserve all the glory. There's sometimes we think to ourselves, I'm pretty amazing. You know, don't you think that sometimes like I'm pretty amazing when you do something good for someone or God's kind of lucky to have me. I deserve glory. And friend, those are times when you probably need to find a room alone and get on your knees and and repentance to the Lord. How many times are we consumed with the glory of self and think, I better get recognized for this. <laughs> you know, what's in this for me? Like, I'll do this. What's in it for me, though? The disciples forgot. And it's actually very interesting. They forgot about the glory of Jesus only a few chapters earlier. I mean, in Mark chapter 8, here they are on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the glory of Jesus. What did they do when that happened? And these two guys were there, James and John, along with Peter. They were there. What did they do? They fell down before Jesus. And now they want to be lifted up, like in the presence of Jesus. Like that's going to actually change in some way in the future. They want to be the ones that people bow down to. I don't think so, guys. I mean, who are these guys that think that they deserve any glory for anything they do? So these guys believe that at some point there would be this time where Jesus would be king. And, and I, I don't, it's hard to understand, like, did, how much did they know? And definitely they were confused about some things, but they do believe this. They believe that there's going to be a time where Jesus will be reigning as king and they will be in his presence there. But Jesus' question to them revealed what their hearts truly wanted. At that moment in their ministry, why were they following Jesus? Well, we see the, the answer to that. When they answer Jesus and they were in this for themselves, they considered the the kingdom of God as a way to exalt themselves. So look at verse 36. Jesus asks a very important and penetrating question. What do you want me to do for you? And the answer to that question, listen, the answer to that question reveals your true aim and purpose in life. So let me ask you that question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What's the answer to that question for you? 
Jesus, let me sit in a position of importance in your kingdom. Probably not too many of us are asking that question. They did. But maybe, God, Jesus, give me, give me power, Jesus. Give me more, a better position, Jesus. Give me more money, Jesus. Extend my life longer, Jesus. Give me that position that I've been wanting for a long time at my work, Jesus. Take this problem person out of my life, Jesus. Those answers that you give to that question reveal your true purpose in life. And it many times reveals your own self-interest in life. It reveals that you live for yourself and you live for your own glory and not for the glory of God. So, so if we ask this question here, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What's the answer? Jesus changed my spouse. No, wait. Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus, make me more like Jesus Christ. Help me depend upon you more. Oh, no, no, get this out of my life. No, no, Jesus. Help me be content. This is my life. And use this, as we talked about at the very beginning of, my, of, of the service, use this to help me to see that I should not depend on myself, but on God who raises the dead. So, so Lord, my request for you, I want you to help me to trust you more. Use this, Lord, in my life to to tell people about Christ. And so what's the answer to that question? Is it just related to you, to earthly things? I mean, is the first thing coming to your mind is all these earthly things on earth? Or is it, here's the heavenly purposes of God. Jesus, will you, will you do that through me? Is it just about you? Or is it about him receiving the glory? And what you see here is James and John, or James and John following Jesus. And they're, in some sense, in ministry but they're still doing things for their own exaltation, their own self-glorification. And see, I think the thing is, sometimes we can say, well, this, when you're a pastor, you don't ever struggle with these kind of things, right? But even when you preach a message like this, I can find myself praying and saying, okay, Lord, let me think about the sermon I'm going to do. And, I can, and you can actually say in your mind, like, okay, Lord, what do I want you to do? I want you to make it go well, have there be no distractions. I want there to... to, to in some sense, maybe people like me, right? You start thinking those things in your head. And really what it ends up being, you found yourself praying to Jesus in such a self-centered way. And it's like, wait a second. Is that what church is about? Just making sure it goes well and people like the message and they go home happy? Like, that's a terrible answer to that question. Or is it how, how Jesus, how? Can we be a church that brings you glory? So I want you, Lord, to have me decrease and you increase. Wasn't that the prayer of John the Baptist, right? So there's a man who did not live for the glory of self. He lived for the glory of God. So as I go into the service today, Lord, help you to increase and me to decrease. Like help me depend upon you alone and not myself. God, you change the hearts of people. And so... What do you want Jesus to do for you? And this question reveals your true heart motive. A, a true servant leader follows the example of Christ and lives for the glory of God. And I guess I would ask us all in here to just consider our heart motives. And maybe we need to have a time of repentance of our own, seeking our own self-interest and self-glory. And may we Follow Jesus in living for the glory of God. We all have influence. Like you're going to go home today, even after the service, throughout this week, and you're going to influence someone else. You will be and are a leader to some extent, whether you want to be or not. So the question is, how are you leading? Are you leading like Christ here as a servant leader, which means you're a distinct follower. You follow with courageous Faith, based upon the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. And you have a distinct purpose. And your purpose is to live for God's glory and not for yourself. Jesus said, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. We need to follow the example of Jesus and be servant leaders like he is. Would you bow your hearts and your Heads with me as we go before the Lord. I like to have a time at the end of my sermon where we can just talk to the Lord. Let me encourage you to do that in your heart right now.
Maybe there was something in the message today that the Lord pricked your heart about. Maybe Christian and you're in here and you say, you know what? I struggle with this. Go to the Lord and ask him for help. Maybe you need some courage in some particular areas. Right now, ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, give me courage. Maybe you're struggling with trusting God and faith. So ask the Lord, Lord, help me to go to your word. Base my thoughts and beliefs based upon your word, not my own desires. Maybe you're in here and you're without Christ. We invite you to come to him today. Father, we are so thankful. From before the foundations of the world were set, that you had a plan to send Jesus Christ. To have your son come, for you loved the world so much that you gave your one and only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we're thankful that we can know and read about the life of Jesus. And the man, the God-man, who was truly the servant leader. And as followers of Jesus, we want to follow Jesus in that way as well. Fear can sometimes overtake our hearts and our minds. The unknown and uncertainty can sometimes paralyze us. But God, we don't want to stay there. We want to look up to you. We want to have faith in you, really based upon your word. So I pray for each believer in this room right now. I pray that they will cling to the promises of your word. And Holy Spirit, give them courage to move forward. Maybe there's something specific in their mind this morning that came to their mind. I pray that you will give them grace to be obedient in that area this week. And I pray for anyone in here who is without Christ. Maybe they're wrestling with you right now. I pray they will surrender their soul to you. And I pray as we go through our week that we will live for your glory and not for ourselves. May this pastor, may all of our elders here, our deacons, all those in leadership, may we do everything we do here in the positional leadership. May we do it for you and not for ourselves. God, bring an end to that kind of desire that we have in our heart. Then may us as a church come together for your glory. And may we really have that prayer in our heart that you must increase. We must decrease for your glory. So we go into this last song. God, we sing this song for you. And we look forward to being with you forever. The truth is, tonight, we might go into eternity. And that would be so blessed. Because we would be in your presence forever. We're so thankful for that. In Jesus' name.